Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Rich Ulig. Rich is an Intel Senior Fellow and the Managing Director of Intel Labs, the organization responsible for research and delivery of breakthrough innovations to reshape Intel's future in areas spanning from computing, communications, security, and intelligence systems. He's held numerous roles across his 25 years with the company, including as Director of Systems and Software Research in Intel. Rich is painted in maize and blue, figuratively at least, as he has three degrees from the University of Michigan, including a PhD in computer science. Rich, welcome to Technovation. It's great to see you. But first, a word from our sponsor, QuickBase, and the company's chief executive officer, Ed Jennings. QuickBase is a low-code application development platform focused on citizen automation, and Ed wanted to share how the company helps organizations democratize automation. Ed, over to you. At QuickBase, our mission is to unlock the potential of organizations to adapt and innovate at speed. We do this by empowering business technologists within organizations to leverage low-code, no-code, to visually build their own applications, click and drag integrate across their existing systems, and eliminate manual and clumsy processes by writing their own workflow automations. As we see more technology responsibility shifting to the business, here are the top three ways that CIOs can unlock the potential of their own businesses to adapt and innovate faster. One, empower a culture of innovation where every member of the team feels responsible for building and innovating digital solutions. Two, build a practice of citizen automation in your company, build our governance frameworks and communities of practice. And three, equip the team with the right citizen automation tools. My name is Ed Jennings and I'm the CEO of QuickBase. I look forward to sharing how we've helped over 5,000 enterprises mature their citizen automation programs. And now on to the interview. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be on and uh, go blue. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's begin with Intel Labs. Uh, it's an organization that's been in place for multiple decades. And as there are many organizations that are well behind you in developing their own labs, innovation labs, whatever form it might take, it strikes me that yours is much more mature than the average company's lab. And I wonder if you could provide a little context as to what Intel uh, Labs does and some of the areas of the focus that you and the team uh, uh, have right now. Yeah, sure. So um, as you noted, we're, we're Intel's research organization, and it's true, we've been around for, for many years. Uh, and, um, you know, we, the way we think of our purpose is that basically, we're here to explore the future for Intel and, and for the industry. And, and we have a, a particular method that we use uh, in our work, and it involves getting outside of Intel. So we, uh, part of our methodology is we, we engage smart people in academia, in governments, in, in industry. And we also do that um, through sites across the planet. So we're, we're not just in the US, you know, we have sites in Oregon and California, but, but we're also in India, in China. Uh, we have sites in Israel and Germany and also in Mexico. And this sort of uh, worldwide footprint, it gives us an opportunity to build research relationships at, at universities and peer research labs, you know, everywhere you can find smart people. And, and so, uh, based on those insights, um, we then sort of pull the best ideas inside the company, and then we initiate our own original research. And, and all the while, we're looking for what are the best ideas, we sort of pressure test them, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And, and because we take a lot of risk, um, sometimes things you know don't pan out and we'll stop those. Um, but we're always looking for the, the kinds of ideas that can scale. Um, when, when we test them out. And, and because in a sense, that's really what Intel does best um, as a company. Once we're onto an idea, we can really bring it to the rest of the planet. 
that last bit is where a lot of organizations go wrong in developing their own labs. They become sort of prototype uh, development of a series of prototypes that don't necessarily move the needle. And gosh, yours is a very large organization. As you point out, in order for innovations to truly move the needle, they do have to scale. They need to be rather big. Can you talk about some of the methods that you use to take ideas or prototypes even and evaluate which ones have the greatest possibility of getting you the scale that you described? Yeah, so um, we have something that we call the work stream, and it's basically a staged process where we, um, in the early stages, we um, allow for a lot of risk taking and um, sort of blue sky thinking, but then we encourage teams to, to prototype and test their ideas, and, and it's at that point you can start to figure out what's going to work and what doesn't, and we're kind of disciplined about it. If an idea isn't going to pan out, um, we go ahead and stop that project and we put the resources into the things that, that are more likely to succeed. And um, for things that do pass those early tests, that early prototyping tests, we, we test them in various ways. Is it technically feasible? Is it feasible from a, a business point of view? And then we enter into another stage where we engage our partners elsewhere in the company. So we'll talk to um, business unit partners or product team partners and sort of come to an agreement at the beginning of a, of a technology transfer, as we call it, uh, to say, what are we going to do or what do we need to do for this to be considered successful? And then we go ahead and do it. And, and at the other end of the process, we decide if the effort was successful with the partnership. And typically what happens is we will ramp down the research investment as the product teams ramp up their investment. And that's kind of a sign of, of a good technology transfer. There isn't like this, this chasm that happens you know, between research and, and the product teams. And being present at lots of different Intel sites, we're not you know, some ivory tower at, at a secluded location, being present next to other you know, partners inside the company helps us to do those transfers. And, and we've had a lot of successes. I mean, you may um, know about Thunderbolt technology, um, you know, it's present in every Mac and PC. And that started as an Intel Labs research project. Back when we, we had lots of connectors on the side of, of you know, laptops, um, we had the idea of, of uh, des designing an IO protocol that would let you converge multiple um, uh, IO protocols all onto one link. And, and we did the early research into that and it became a, a present now in, you know, across the ecosystem. Um, virtualization technology would be another example. In fact, that's what I personally worked on early in my career. And, and now we see that in you know, pretty much every cloud data center. Um, another example would be silicon photonics, um, which was early work goes back more than 15 years in, in Intel labs, we did sort of the core um, physics investigation into what, what does it take to build a, a hybrid laser and how do you um, build uh, silicon photo detectors and, and light amplifiers and, and all those technology ingredients then went into what are now uh, the products for our, our silicon photonics product division, which is shipping optical uh, transceivers in, into the market for, for network communications as well. So um, that's kind of the methodology, maybe a few examples of where we've been successful in the past. And, and I know that uh, data is also an area of, of great interest, needless to say, it's a, of great interest across companies. Uh, the investment in it, uh, if anything, was also accelerated by COVID-19 across the past year and a half plus. And, and I wonder if you could draw some perspectives there. I know that from our past conversations, you've been investigating and investing in the intersection between data and AI uh, to find ways to enrich the world. Can you talk a bit about some of what you're seeing there and what you and your team are doing there as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the big story in computing in the past few years has been that rise of, of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And um, and it is, just as you suggested, it's data has been the enabler for it. Data and the ability to, to process that data at scale. And 
um, you know, we, we're, we're all seeing it. There's just more and more data entering into the world all the time. Part of that's because we've just been blanketing the planet with sensors, you know, doorbell cameras and smart speakers and smart factories and self-driving cars. They all have, uh, you know, our sources of data that, that we can collect. And just, you know, the experience that we've all had, the remote work um, has led to, uh, you know, a huge infrastructure investment so that we can um, collect and uh, move more and more data all the time. And so what's really exciting about machine learning and AI is that um, with all that data, we can we can draw new insights uh, to, to do things like optimize business operations or make advances in, in medicine. You know, if you think about genomic data as, as a kind of data, getting good at processing that at scale means we can start to, to implement things like personalized medicine, tuning treatment to, to the specific uh, requirements of, of individuals. But despite all that promise, one of the things that we, we've realized for a while now is that there are a lot of inhibitors to, to this kind of progress or this kind of insight. Um, you know, like Stuart Brand, I think it was in the 80s that, that he said information wants to be free, which, which is true, you know, because the cost of, of collecting data and moving around just keeps going down. But at the same time, there's a lot of reasons why, why data can get stuck in silos. Um, that can be because of regulatory constraints. You know, think of things like, like HIPAA. Because uh, data is valuable, data owners may not want to share it. There's IP value in data. And, and also sometimes it's just that data is so massive uh, it, it, and it's so easy to collect that it's, it, it is, in relative terms, still expensive to move. You think about all the data we can collect out at the edge, shipping it all to some centralized location doesn't make sense. So, so data is always gonna be sort of distributed. It sort of has some gravity to it, if, if you like. And so these are both the opportunities with being able to process more data, but also the challenges that we see. And, and some of the, the, the research we've been doing in the labs is, is trying to um, look at what sort of technologies can we invent to, to build confidence that data doesn't get misused. And uh, this is where there's a lot of really interesting architectural and, and design questions. Well, you're, you're alluding to some of the issues uh, that a lot of organizations must grapple with regarding security and privacy and some of the, the, the complexities that any organization, as they think about the best way of curating and making use of the data of the organization and, and customer data and so on. Talk a bit about some of your perspectives from that uh, perspective. Um, I know that you've talked about the, an idea of the trusted compute base, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that means and what's behind it. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways to think about security is to ask how much of uh, the hardware and software in a computing system do you need to, to rely upon to, to protect any, any given bit of sensitive information? And, and that's where this idea of a, a trusted computing base or, or a TCB comes into play. You, you can kind of think of it as like, um, like it's the circle of trust that you have around some sensitive information. The bigger that circle is, the more risk that, that the information will leak to, to some adversary or to some negative purpose. And so once you understand this concept of the TCB, the goal is to try to make it um, as small as possible. Um, it, it has to be big enough so that you can do something interesting, but you want to get it down to you know, a, a very minimal set of well-understood and, and trusted components. Um, and then if you can achieve this, then the rest of the system might somehow be compromised, but at least the data that's in the TCB would, would be safe. And so this is a really important concept, especially when we think about distributed computing, um, not just the computing that happens within a single system, but, but as it gets distributed out, you really need to understand where software and data is coming, who the different owners are. And, and this is a really big, big challenge, a big design and architecture challenge. And now you could say, 
well, doesn't encryption solve this? Why don't we just encrypt data? Um, and absolutely, that's a, a very important tool. Um, and it works, especially when data is at rest. You know, if you have sensitive data, it's in a storage system, encrypt it. That makes sense. We know how to do it. Or even if you're moving data around, um, we, you know, it's routinely we now encrypt data before moving it over, over networks that, that may not be trusted end to end. But when it comes to the time that you want to actually compute on the data, you've got to bring it into the clear. You've got to decrypt it. And that's where, where it gets hard. And so um, one of the ideas that we've been developing for, for many years now is, is the idea of a, a trusted execution environment. It, it's basically a, a safe place within a system where you can unpack that data, decrypt it, and then run some algorithm, some code over it without the rest of the system being able to see it. And, and we've built a lot of these trusted execution environments in Intel Labs um, over the years. One of them was based on um, virtualization technology. I mentioned that earlier. You can build what's called a, a hypervisor uh, or a virtual machine monitor that you run underneath an operating system. And um, you can also have the system cryptographically measure that, that hypervisor so that you know that it, it's what it, what it claims to be. And uh, in fact, this is something that we now routinely see in PCs. There's, you know, a security hypervisor is, is a common thing with it within a system. But the problem is you still need to trust the OS that's running above the hypervisor. And that can be millions of lines of code. And so um, as we've sort of progressed in our thinking here in our research, we, we've been looking at ways to further shrink the, the TCB. And, and we've done that with a, a new technology that we call SGX or secure guard extensions. And the, the basic idea of SGX is you, you wanna create this, this enclave, this place where you can run programs over, over data that, that's been decrypted. But anytime data leaves the enclave, it becomes re-encrypted immediately. And the kind of the amazing thing about the SGX design is that the OS doesn't need to be in the enclave and, and any other applications don't need to be in the enclave. The system BIOS, all of that can be outside of the TCB. The only thing you have to trust is the application, the data that it's operating on, and then the hardware, you know, the Intel processor that, that's building the, the enclave. I know a, a related concept that you've been working on uh, is related to homomorphic encryption. And I wonder if you could take a moment and first define the term for those who might be uh, unfamiliar with it, but also some of the benefits you see arising uh, from this new form of encryption. Sure. So um, if, we, if the, the goal is to reduce the TCB to as small as possible, um, if that's the security goal, then the logical um, end point of that is to reduce the TCB to zero. Like you don't have to trust anything. And that is what fully homomorphic encryption does. Um, it's, it's a way of encrypting data that still allows you to process over the data. You can still run algorithms over the data, but um, you never have to decrypt it. Um, so that's the, like, the really cool thing about it. The problem with homomorphic encryption is that it's super slow um, and it also causes the data to expand. And, and it's not like a little bit, it's a lot. It might be 10,000 times slower and like massive expansion of, of the data and its representation. So for, for many years, it's been uh, a sort of a theoretical thing. But what we're trying to do is bring hardware accelerators to the implementation of homomorphic encryption algorithms and methods so that we can reduce those overheads by many orders of magnitude. And, and in fact, this is something that DARPA is really excited about and issued a call for proposals. Uh, and this would be another example of how we go outside of Intel. So, you know, we work with uh, government agencies and, and DARPA in this case on a program called Deprive 
Um, and we're we're now building an accelerator that we think can can reduce by maybe four orders of magnitude the overheads of homomorphic encryption. You might still be 10x slower, um, but that is a dramatic improvement and it gets you into a space where for particularly sensitive data, you can really bring the TCB down to nothing and then be you know fully uh, assured of the integrity and, and safety of that data as you as you uh, run algorithms over it. Yeah, I know another example you shared with me earlier that was related to the conundrum you, you mentioned earlier related to data silos uh, was from a partnership you developed with the University of Pennsylvania. I wonder if you could take a moment and describe uh, that, that partnership with that university. Yeah, sure. So um, that has to do with uh, another medical application, and it, it's uh, over... Um, the data in this case is is brain tumor data. So you know, imagine like the imaging data you can pull off of an fMRI machine um, to, to image uh, like a human brain. And uh, you may want to do that for diagnosis. Um, does a patient have a, a tumor? And you know, you would have um, typically a human in the loop looking at that data and, and trying to, to identify um, the presence of a tumor and segmenting it in the imagery. Um, but we'd love to, to get the benefit of, of AI and you know computer vision algorithms to do that effectively. And, and the, you know, as we noted at the beginning of the discussion, the more data, the more examples you have of, of brain imagery that, that has tumors and that doesn't, and that you can learn from and train these AI algorithms, the higher the accuracy will be. But the problem is that th these um, collected data sets are, are siloed. Every medical institution, every hospital um, collects their own data, and they uh, they may be reluctant to share the data, or they may not even be able to because of the you know the regulatory constraints. Um, so what we'd like to do is build systems that can um, effectively aggregate all that data to federate the data, but still allow the individual data owners to retain their their control over it. And that's something called federated learning. And um, and this here is a place where we can use SGX again, because the, the basic approach is that the data stays at the different institutions, but we pass around a, um, a deep learning model that is the, the representation of the best algorithm for the, doing the, the uh, brain tumor segmentation analysis. And it gets passed around between the different institutions, and they all are able to contribute their, their data sets, their examples to, to that model. What does SGX have to do with it? Well, the model itself is, is an important form of data that you want to protect. And you'd like to be sure that it isn't tampered with as you move it from one institution to the next, and just be sure that it'll be protected. And so that's um, when we take federated learning together with the hardware support of SGX were able to achieve those goals. That's a great example. I also wanted to ask you about another topic I know you and your team are working on, which is quantum computing. Um, I'd love to get your perspectives on uh, advances related to the topic and where you see some of the greatest value uh, or potential value being derived from quantum. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing work in quantum for, for more than five years now, and um, it's it's a a pretty exciting area, both from a scientific point of view and an engineering point of view. Um, we, we're um, approaching quantum with, with a few particular principles in mind. Um, we're we're uh, selecting a particular type of qubit, which is the basic operator or the basic you know, um, building block of quantum uh, systems that we think has advantages in, in being able to scale. Um, and we're also taking a full system approach and, and bringing some new technologies like being able to configure and measure um, qubits 
at the very low temperatures that, that they run um, it because you know for, for quantum systems to, to work you have to control um, all kinds of noise um, that may affect the uh, the coherency of the qubit and and so they have to run it like close to zero uh, degrees Kelvin um, but we have ways of, of measuring those those qubits in their state and configuring them and, and there's a bunch of really um, uh, interesting technologies around quantum but it's likely many years out still um, so we sort of have a parallel effort uh, underway where we're looking at one of the applications for quantum computing. And uh, despite all of the work that we're doing in you know, trying to make data safe, one of the applications of quantum computing that's, you know, that's well recognized in the field is to break cryptographic algorithms. And um, particularly those that are based on, on prime number factorization. And we, um, I think it's you know, recognized in the field that, that's, that that is a risk and it's a risk even if it takes a while for quantum to, to reach that point, um, because there's various actors that are that are taking encrypted data sets, tucking them away for the future so that they could um, potentially uh, crack them if you know quantum computing does succeed in breaking these crypto algorithms. So we have a, a whole investigation in looking at what we call post-quantum crypto, which is um, improving the algorithms, improving the accelerators for those algorithms, and making them resilient against a quantum attack. And that's something that makes sense to do today, because we want that data to be uh, encrypted well before, you know, any ability for quantum to go and put that data at risk. By the way, there are many other applications of quantum that are interesting that don't get into data decryption, um, but but uh, you know, which is also why we're pursuing quantum. But um, but, but you know, we're, we want to make sure that that quantum doesn't get used for for bad purposes, and and that's why we're we're you know designing these post quantum crypto algorithms. I, you know, Intel is so interesting in, for so many reasons. It, it, you have such a remarkable ecosystem uh, that you draw insight from. We talked about some of the partnerships that you you undertake. Um, there are a variety of other companies you go to market with. Uh, of course, they're the ultimate customers of your your products as well. And I wonder, you know, as you are uh, determining where to focus your team's attention, how do you leverage that ecosystem for insight? Well, um, we start with the our, our network um, externally. You know, like I explained at the beginning of our discussion, we have um, strong relationships with universities, with government research agencies, with other technology peers, and and that network then allows us to assemble teams around any particular question of interest. You know, at, at any given point in time. So I'll give an example of uh, neuromorphic computing. This is a, a new area that we've been. Um, investigating, we built hardware implementations of, of uh, neuromorphic computing systems, um, but rather than keep them inside Intel, we um, have taken them outside and have created a whole research community around using this hardware and exploring new applications for it. Um, we have our own ideas about how it might be useful, but we, what we want to do is sort of unleash the creativity of, of researchers outside the company, and we think a good way to do that, even before it's ever a product, is just to enable them with the research prototypes that we build. And so, um, you know, that would be an example of how we activate uh, and, and learn from our partners out, outside the company. And that can also be the beginning if neuromorphic, which is still at a research stage, to be clear, until it has no, no products in neuromorphic computing. But if it ever gets to that point, we'll sort of have seeded an ecosystem of, of users uh, that understand what the, the architecture is good for, and then we can build from there. That's fantastic. Well, Rich Ulig, thank you so much for taking time with me today, sharing a bit of your perspectives on the many exciting things that uh, you and your team are working on. It's been a really insightful conversation. Thank you.
Thanks, Peter. It's been a great discussion.